We have been looking at the book of Ezekiel and we have been looking at God's effort to restore the hearts of his people. And you see God using some really vivid imagery in either describing the sin problem that we have and then also how God is going to resolve that sin problem. And that is uh, certainly true in Ezekiel 23 and 24. Now, if you've ever looked at these chapters, you might notice these are some kind of crazy chapters. And we're moving into some unusual pictures that uh, God is going to give the rest of the way through this book. But I, I hope to kind of give some clarity about what these images are representing, because ultimately God is depicting the essence of our sin problem in these images. And as he uses that, he's going to help us see the, the way out of the sin problem and how we can move forward with God, but getting underneath those sins and really talking about here's where the problem ultimately lies as he looks at the history of Israel and the history of Judah. In, in Ezekiel chapter 23, uh, you have some strange names that are given. You uh, have a name, Ahola, in the first four verses, and you're noting in verse four that she represents in this story uh, Israel, the northern nation. And then you have also told to us Aholabah, she represents the southern nation of Judah. It says Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria was the capital of the northern nation. Jerusalem, the capital of the southern nation of Judah. So representing those two nations that existed at that time. And from verse 5 through verse 10, you have God depicting the problem of the sins of the northern nation of Israel. And, and what God does is he encapsulates the picture by saying, you wanted to be like Assyria. You loved Assyria. You loved their power. You put your hope in them. You made alliances with Assyria. And so rather than trusting in God and loving God and looking toward God, you look toward Assyria. And since you loved Assyria so much, I gave you Assyria. And if you know their history, Assyria was the nation that conquered Samaria and destroyed Israel and scattered them. You'll notice in verse in verse 11, though, that Aholabah, that's Judah, the sister, says, says there, you saw all this. You saw their adultery, their promiscuity, and their lust. And again, using that in a figure of unfaithfulness toward God. You saw all that, and you did the same thing. Verse 12, it tells us that, they went ahead and also lusted after the Assyrians, wanting to make alliances with them, trusting in them and seeking after them rather than loving and trusting in God. And if that were not enough, you notice that it tells you at the end of verse 13 that they were defiled in just the same way as the northern nation, parenthesis, Judah was not any better than Israel. And then you're told in verse 14, but things got worse. After you gave yourselves over to Assyria, you did the same thing for Babylon and you lusted after them and their idols and their gods and put your trust in them and made alliances with them and loved them rather than trusting God and loving in God. And so this whole picture describes this, this imagery and we don't have the time for it and probably not useful to go over it, but you should read some of the verses in here about the depiction of sexual excitement that is used to describe how desperately God's people loved foreign nations and were excited to be connected to them 
While the while they did not care about God and had no love and no excitement and no passion for God. And so what chapter 23 then goes about describing is you get down to verse 28 and then also in verse 35 describing because these are your sins, judgment is belonging to you. You're worthy of that because of your heart being turned away from God. But in the midst of this chapter, what I want to zero in on are two places where God essentially notes what the problems were. Why were they so excited about the nations and chasing after their gods and so unfaithful to the true and living God? There are two places here that I want us to look at. You'll notice in verse 21, one of the pictures that is described when it says there shockingly in verse 21 of chapter 23, so you longed for the lewdness of your youth when in Egypt, this is interesting, when in Egypt your bosom was caressed. I want you to think about that for a minute. He's tracking to a problem that existed all the way back when God had called his people out of Egypt. <laughs> And what is so fascinating is when you go back and read what was going on in Egypt as the exodus occurs, as well as what God says about what was happening, you are reminded about the shocking nature of these people. You might remember, as we saw back in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verses 6 through 8, that Ezekiel says that when the people were in Egypt, that they refused to get rid of their idols. Exodus never told us that, that they were already idolaters while in Egypt. And God comes to them and tells them to get rid of those idols. And they stubbornly refused and brought them out of Egypt. But then you might remember some of the accounts that are given to us. For example, in, in Exodus chapter 14 and verses 11 and 12, we haven't even really gotten out of the land of Egypt they are backed up against the Red Sea. And you might remember that the people begin to complain against Moses and say, we told you not to bring us out here. We, we, we told you we would have been better off staying in Egypt. And they already have a heart that wants to go back to Egypt. Just a few chapters later, when we read about them complaining because they don't have water in Exodus chapter 16 and in Exodus chapter 17, Again, their complaints are coming out in terms of we want to go back to Egypt. We don't want to go to this promised land. Let us go back to Egypt. And it becomes so strong that when you get to Numbers chapter 11 and those first six verses, you're told that the people are remembering fondly their days in Egypt about how they had the cucumbers and the leeks and the various foods that they ate and they longed for it so much. You may remember that in verses five and six, you're told that they made the plan to stone Moses and Aaron, elect a new leader and go back to Egypt. And I want you to see that here we are all the way in the days of Ezekiel now. So a thousand some years have passed nearly. And he says, you want to know what the problem is, is you have still this heart to go back to your old sinful ways. 
You have constantly desired to go back to Egypt. You constantly want to go back to that prior life, that prior way of living. And you see that in the heart of the people when they talk about, we want to be like the nations. Well, what are they saying? We don't want God as our God. We want to be able to have our idols and have our fun and commit our sins and everything be okay with that. And so one of the big problems that God keeps identifying is that rather than looking forward to what God had in store for his people, they were always looking back to what they left behind. And you can probably think of some accounts in the scriptures where that's a problem, where God is saying, I don't want you to go back. I don't want you to look back. I don't want you to think about the past and desire that old life and that old way. And here in Ezekiel, God's putting his finger on that and saying, the problem is you're longing for your old way of life and you're refusing to look forward to what God had in store for you. And if you think about the wilderness, how true that was. I mean, can you imagine being in the wilderness and saying, we would rather go back to our slavery and oppression than go to this promised land that God is taking us to? I mean, remember, when we are at Numbers 11, this is supposedly a 10-day journey. We're only asking for 10 days here. This is not a one-year trek. This is not, you know, circumventing the globe here. It is a 10-day journey. Should have taken, if we went really slow, two weeks to get there. And all throughout that journey, they keep wanting to go back. They keep refusing to go forward. I want you to see how it's expressed another way in verse 35. Verse 35 of Ezekiel 23. Therefore, this says the sovereign Lord, since you have forgotten me and turned your back on me, you must bear the consequences of your lewdness and prostitution. Same imagery here. Notice the idea is not there was this momentary lapse where we forgot about God and we're sorry about that. But there is a willful decision on the part of the people to say, we are not going to think about God. We are putting him behind our back. And you might remember we have seen that visual in Ezekiel. And Jeremiah speaks to it as well, where the people are literally, literally worshiping idols in the temple courtyard with their back to the temple. Literally physical posture showing we have put God behind us and we do not care. And in essence, what God is driving at is everything that I did for you is apparently meaningless. All of my provision, all of my rescue, all of my setting you free and bringing you into that land all meant nothing to them. It all became ho-hum, status quo. Yes, we were rescued. Yes, you brought us through the wilderness. Yes, we're in the promised land. And it all just didn't change their hearts at all. And so they longed for Egypt. Now, in chapter 24, God's going to tell this visual parable to try to express how the people have been so stubborn in wanting to go back to their sins rather than moving forward with God. In, in chapter 24, you will notice that we have a, a picture. Uh, verse 3, here's the message. Tell this rebellious people this parable. So we're going to have a parable. And the parable is one in verse 3 
where he's describing a cooking pot. Now, you might remember Ezekiel told a story earlier like this about a cooking pot. It actually represented what was in the hearts of the people. In Ezekiel chapter 11, you might remember the people said, we're safe and we're fine because we're like a cooking pot and we're the choice meat in the middle. And so we're going to be protected. And everybody who was captured and taken off into Babylon, they're the bad meat. They're the bad ones. But, you know, we're the good ones. We're righteous and good and we're, we're doing just fine. And so we're spared in the pot. Well, God's going to use that again here. And he's going to flip the image a little bit for him. And you'll notice the picture that in verse 4 it says, Now put in the pieces of meat, all the choice pieces, the leg and the shoulder, fill it with the best of the bones, and take the pick of the flock, pile the wood beneath it for, for the bones, and bring it to a boil, and cook the bones that are in it. For thus says the sovereign Lord, Woe to the city of bloodshed, to the pot now encrusted, whose deposit will not go away. Take the meat out piece by piece in whatever order it comes, for the blood she shed is in her midst. She poured it out on the bare rock. She did not pour it on the ground where the dust would cover it. To stir up wrath and take revenge, I put blood on the bare rocks that would not be covered. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the city of bloodshed. I too will pile the wood high. So heap on the wood and kindle the fire, cook the meat well, mixing in the spices and let the bones be charred. Then set the empty pot on the coals until it becomes hot and its copper glows so that its impurities may be melted and its deposit burned away. It has frustrated all efforts. Its heavy deposit has not been removed, not even by fire. All right, let's break down this stunning image because I want you to notice that the image that's given, they think they're the good meat, they're in the pot, they're going to be saved. God goes, all right, let's, let's work with that imagery. Sure, meat's put in the pot, but then there is this cry in verses 6 through 10 that says, oh no, there is this disgust that's in the pot. And you might read it and think the pot is bad, but it's not that the pot is bad initially. The point is, the meat has become so filthy and so defiled that it's also corroding and disgusting the pot itself. Because you'll notice the picture that's being given where he says, you know what, you're actually not the cream, you are the scum. You're the thing that's defiling, you're the thing that's gross. And now the pot needs a deep cleaning. Now, I know you've had experience this, where you've cooked something, and you either cooked it too long or it was one of those things or you left it on the burner accidentally and that pot or that pan just gets totally burnt in with something in there. And I want you to notice that God is now describing how he's trying to clean it. In verse 11, heat this empty pot until the ember and the metal glows. He's just trying to burn it to get all of that encrusted scum off of the pot. But notice that verse 12, it says, it won't work. Even though I've taken the filthy meat out that no one wants. Notice it says, take it out piece by piece. Nobody's going to want this. It's gross. The pot itself is gross. It says, it's, I, there's no point in doing it. Its efforts have been frustrated. The heavy deposit, this corrosion has not been removed even by fire. So you can imagine if you took a pot and you just 
burned it to a thousand degrees trying to get that corrosion off and goes, it's not working. So just imagine you take your pot and every effort you have made to get that off of there, you cannot get it off. So what's left to do with your gross pot? Verse 13. Now your impurity is lewdness because I tried to cleanse you, but you would not be cleansed from your impurity. You will not be clean again until my wrath against you has subsided. Here is a picture that God is saying, I have been trying to get you clean, but you have refused to be clean. I'm coming in and scrubbing and it's of no use. And it is a picture that God is always giving to us about the nature of sin. Why is sin such a problem? Because over and over again, God is saying, you are defiling yourself. And we often don't get the visual of how far reaching our defilement goes. But here's just a few passages that talk that way. James 3, verse 6. The tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire. And is itself fire by hell. Notice the idea that he says your tongue can defile the whole person. That's the problem of sin. The problem of sin is that it's not just, oh, it's a simple sin. It is a defiling process. It is going to plague all of you. James and Jude chapter two, or Jude 22 and verse, verse 22 and verse 23. Have mercy of those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear. Hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Notice the staining imagery that, that God uses. Same in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. You ever thought about how defiling bitterness is? You know, we just kind of go, oh, yeah, we're bitter towards somebody. You know, we're upset about something. And he goes, you need to watch out. Many become defiled. These sins that we allow into our lives are pictured like a corrosion. They're pictured like an encrusting. And they become encrusted onto the pan and the pot and allowed to stay there long enough to burn in long enough. You can't get it out. And that's what God is saying. I've tried to clean you over and over again. One wonders if he's talking about maybe like Hezekiah's reforms and Josiah's reforms where they came in and did a purging and a cleansing and tore out the idols. And yet what happened right after that? They're right back in it again. You can't get it out of the people. Their hearts are so dead set in looking back toward their sins. They refuse to let go of those defilements. And that's what is being pictured here. And it's what the New Testament is being pictured for us. Is that God is always saying, I want a holy people. And you're supposed to be a holy temple to me. But there's this big problem that keeps happening. We refuse to get clean. We become so stubborn in our defilements. That God cleans us. And we allow the stain to remain. Because we go right back into the sin. This might sound familiar to you because... Peter said that very thing. Listen to how Peter words this. 
For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. And here you're picking, picturing a person who's come to Christ. And it says they've escaped the defilements of the world. Right? So we, here's God with the picture. I've cleaned that pot off. I've got all that scrubbing power done. Pot's clean. Escape the defilements of the world. They again are entangled in them and overcome and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them never to know the way of righteousness than to know it and turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What is the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. That was the picture of what we do. And I want you to see the importance of this visual is because what God is trying to communicate to us, it's not the problem that you committed a sin. The problem is I cleansed you and you went back right to it again. And then I cleansed you again. And what'd you do? You stuck it right back on there again. And you keep burning these defilements in over and over and over and over again. And God's kind of throwing his hands in the air and going... What am I supposed to do? I, 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 I washed you. And yet you continue to have these sins staining your life. Think about the Apostle Paul when he spoke to the Corinthians and he used words like this, that you have been washed, you have been sanctified, and you have been justified, that we are a temple to the Holy Spirit and we are not our own, but we have been bought with a price to remind them that that is not the way that we are supposed to be anymore. There is supposed to be a change, a transformation, not to run back to the sins that we have been cleansed from. And so to state this really another way is that the problem is God keeps scrubbing off the defilement and we keep putting more defilement back on the pot. And, and God's looking at us going, why would you do that? I'm trying to keep you clean and you're the one that keeps running back into the mud. You're the one that, to use the words of Peter, is the dog returning to the vomit. Would we please see our sins in that light? We are cannonballing ourselves back into the pool of vomit after God has taken us back out. And yet so often we miss that idea that we don't look at our sins in that way because we keep looking back to our sins longingly, wanting to return back to the world. Now, let's talk about the end of chapter 24. This is a problem for people sometimes when they read this. The, the, the sum of verses 15 through 27 is that God now comes to Ezekiel and it is amazing that God is, makes his prophets go through such difficult visual pictures to communicate important messages. He does it to Isaiah. He does it to Daniel. He does it to Jeremiah. He does it to Hosea. He does it here with Ezekiel. Ezekiel is told, I'm going to take away the delight of your, your eyes and that his wife is going to suddenly die. But that's not what's even quite so strange. What is strange even more is he's told in verse 17 and verse, verse 16 
I don't want you to go through the normal mourning process, having a, a, a funeral and mourning and weeping and all that. Don't do that. You keep that all inside of yourself. And don't go through those natural processes that you would normally do. And you go, what a strange thing. Why would God tell him to do that? Well, you'll notice that the explanation begins in verse 21 where he starts telling them, I'm going to take away your temple, your sanctuary, which is the delight of your eyes, the object of your affection. The temple is about to be destroyed. The hope of the people of God in that day and time as, as a person of Israel, that's where God meets his people. That's where forgiveness is. And God is saying, I'm going to take away the delight of your eyes, but I don't want you to mourn over it or weep over it. Now you have to ask yourself why. Why would God say, I want you to hold all that in and not go through any kind of mourning process when I take away the delight of your eyes, that temple? <clears throat> the text doesn't tell us, but I think a conclusion could be necessarily drawn. Why shouldn't you weep over it? It's because you lost it because you didn't want it. You didn't want it. If you wanted that temple so much, then why were you worshiping all your other gods? If you wanted that temple so much, why were you not seeking the true and living God? If that temple really meant to you what it was supposed to mean to you, why are you going out in these other sins and longing to be like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon? Why are you doing those things if that matters so much to you? To put that another way, if you wanted a relationship with God so badly, you wouldn't have been seeking idols and been longing for those sins. So don't be all brokenhearted when God does exactly what you've asked for. It's one of the big messages of these two chapters. You wanted Assyria so badly, then you can have Assyria, he told Israel. To Judah, he said, you love Babylon so much, then Babylon you can have. You don't want my temple and my relationship? I'll take away the temple. You don't have to have it anymore. I won't be there with you any longer because that's what you've asked for. And I hope that we get a sense of what God is expressing in terms of relationship with his people, that what he's trying to communicate to us is when, when we are putting our hope and trust in anything else but him, and that we are longing and our minds are preparing to go commit sins and we're planning and excited to go and go back into the defilement, what we are telling God is we don't want him. We just don't want him. We're just like the people in the wilderness. Let's get back to Egypt as fast as we can. We will pay our homage. We will give him our lip service. But what we want to do ultimately is we want to go back to Egypt. When God cleanses us and for us to then turn around and have no life change, no transformation, no gratefulness, no thanksgiving, no brokenness of heart and repentance, what we are telling God is we don't want him. We have cast God behind our backs and we are saying to him, that we have forgotten all that he's done. And let me finally state it one other way, and then we'll wrap this up. What God's message then is, if we allow filth to remain stuck, what else does he have to do? 
Whose problem is it when we continue to allow defilements to stay within us day after day after day? Is it God's fault or ours? God gave the picture here. I've been scrubbing you clean like crazy. And you just keep putting that stuff right back on to the point now it's encrusted. And the deposit won't come off. And the scum is now wretched to the pot. And all that there is left to do is to judge the pot. That's his picture. Is he is trying to get us to see the importance of tackling our sins and allowing God's cleansing to stick in our lives. I hope that's one of the things that we think about in terms of the grace of God is that we would never take it for granted to such a degree that we're like, oh man, I did something wrong. God forgive me. And we are like five minutes later ready to get right back into the very same thing we were doing. To have an appreciation of what God has done and to let that really hit within us. The people of Israel are pictured here in chapter 23 as a people who have been set free from their sins, set free from their oppression and their slavery. And it didn't really matter. And that's why God comes along like through the Apostle Paul and says, you need to put off the old self. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind and put on a new self that is full of righteousness and holiness. That we would be a people who cannot bear to allow the defilement to stay in our hearts and in our lives. Be bothered by it. Be bothered that there are defilements that continue to stay and stay and stay. And do something about it. Because God's ready to cleanse. But sometimes we're the ones that are jumping right back into the filth. And putting the stain right back on there. Let God's cleansing stick. Stop looking back. And instead look forward to the new work and the new purpose God has for you. Let's go to God in prayer tonight. Our Heavenly Father. God, forgive us for how we can get so stuck in our sins. Forgive us for how many times that we can come to you seeming to seek repentance and forgiveness, but do not make any change so that we can be clean before your sight. And Lord, I pray that you would expose those defiling, encrusted areas that we have in the inner recesses of our heart. Show us the things that are filthy. Help us to see the areas of our weakness. And give us the courage to address those areas and to be transformed. Lord, forgive us for how often we look longingly back to the old life, to our old sinful ways. Forgive us for how often we drop back into the status quo of living for ourselves. And Lord, I pray that you would just give us hearts that would be so eager 
to wear your, your holiness, to wear your cleansing as clean garments before you. And Lord, I pray that you would break our desires for our idols and sins that we have in our hearts. Cut those things out from us. And help us to think on things that are pure and right and lovely and glorious to reflect who you are. And Lord, I pray that you would keep us from being a people who would return back to the pit, back to that filth, back to those gross sins. But put us before you clean. And help us to be strong in our fight against temptations as we go forward. Because we see all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing an invitation song. We invite you to think about your life. And think about the way God pictures the severity of sin and its impact on our lives. And would you make a decision today to change your life for God. To see what God is trying to accomplish He'll make you clean. He can get rid of any and every stain and sin. But the question really is, do we want that? Do we really want to be whole before him? Or do we want to go back to that old life? We would love to help you in your walk with God. Just let us know once you come forward while we stand and while we sing.